Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 12 right down to verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, right through to verse 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. <coughs> Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 But I would ye should understand brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 18, and we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1 and the verse 17. It reads, but the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. And my subject today is simply entitled, Being Set for the Defense of the Gospel. Now the Apostle Paul, at this time of writing to the church at Philippi, was in prison in Rome. Now why was he there? Why is a man put into prison? Paul was put into jail for no other crime than he was charged with being a preacher of the gospel. So I want you to understand, young people, he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's not there as a murderer. He's not there as a thief. He's not there as somebody who was stirring up sedition or starting a riot. He's in jail for one reason only, and that was for the preaching of the gospel. And you know, it does happen even today. It happened to Paul, put into prison for preaching the gospel, but it also happens in our day. Do you know that it happened here in Northern Ireland in 1966? Three of our ministers were imprisoned for the cause of Christ. These three ministers were, of course, the late Dr. Paisley, the Reverend John Wiley, and the Reverend Ivan Foster. In 1966, there were 16 churches under the umbrella of the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster in Northern Ireland. And of course, there was those that, in authority that believed, well, it's the end of the free church. Even amongst ourselves, we were talking about the beginning of the end. Some were predicting the death and demise of the denomination. And of course, nothing was further from the truth for, for within a few months uh, and certainly a few years after the release of these three ministers from prison the numbers of congregations doubled 
And now there's over a hundred congregations in Ulster, Spain, Canada, United States of America, Africa, and Australia. See, in Paul's day, when Paul was in prison for the sake of the gospel, it was said this was the end. But the three ministers in 1966, like Paul, despite their imprisonment, despite their difficulties, despite the trying circumstances, they were gripped with a great confidence in the power and the principles of the gospel. And in the first century, the apostle Paul was gripped with the same confidence. In prison, he didn't wallow in self-pity, didn't become disgruntled, didn't say, poor me, wasn't overwhelmed that everybody seemed to be against him. No, he had confidence in the gospel. Look at verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Life in prison for Paul was hard. He was chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. He couldn't exercise his ministry as before. He was facing death every day. Remember, Nero is the Caesar on the throne, so he could have been executed at any moment. And yet he believes in a sovereign God who has allowed this to happen to him to fulfill his own plan and fulfill his own purpose regarding the gospel. And during times, Paul's time in imprisonment, there were those outside who took advantage of that situation. There was two classes of preachers began to emerge. There was one class of preacher who was contentious. They had a selfish ambition. They had a, a party spirit. And they preached Christ and the gospel, hoping to add affliction to Paul's bonds. They preached out of envy, out of jealousy, out of strife. They had no real love for God, no real love for God's servant. They had no real love for the message that they were speaking about. They were preaching, I believe, to gain a prominence for themselves or to stir up things against Paul himself. The other class of preacher that emerged at that time were what I'm going to call the considerate preacher or the compassionate preacher. They were truly committed to the gospel. They had a great love for God. They had a love for God's servant, the apostle Paul. They were strengthened by his imprisonment. Before Paul's imprisonment, they were fearful. They were nervous. Oh, we don't speak about Christ because we too could be threatened with imprisonment. But after Paul's imprisonment, they were emboldened to go out and to go forth and preach the gospel. And there Paul, when he hears about this, these contentious preachers, when he hears, hears about these considerate, compassionate preachers, the amazing thing is this, this is incredible, the Apostle Paul was thankful. He is pleased. Listen to what he says in verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Notwithstanding, he's saying, the disdain of men towards my circumstances and my imprisonment. Notwithstanding their wrong motive. 
Notwithstanding their wrong approach, even to preaching, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. You see, for the Apostle Paul in prison, the message was, of course, more important than the messenger. And here the Apostle Paul's in Rome in prison, and he's thinking of Philippi. He's maybe thinking of other great cities as well. And he's not merely thinking about them culturally. He's not thinking about them educationally. He's not thinking about them materially or politically. Here he is in prison, and what's he thinking about? What's going on in Philippi? And he's reflecting on the spiritual needs of that city. He's thinking about the spreading of the gospel. He's not even thinking about his pains or his problems. He's thinking of the presentation and the preaching of Christ. And his mind isn't taken up with his pain or his problems or, or the world situation or what's happening in the city. His mind is full of the preaching of Christ. Look at verse 17. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now there's three things in this text of scripture. I want to be very simple, very brief this morning. I want you to think, first of all, of the definition of the gospel. Because here's the theme that the Apostle Paul embraced. When he's thinking about defending something, here's the message that he says he defends. I am set for the defense of the gospel. That's the truth that he um, experienced. Think about the definition of the gospel. The gospel is mentioned some six times in chapter 1. In verse 5 it's mentioned, your fellowship in the gospel. In verse 7 it is mentioned, the confirmation of the gospel. Again in verse 12, the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 17, the defense of the gospel. If you come down to verse 27, he talks about, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And then also in verse 27, he, he mentions striving together for the faith of the gospel. Six times. Now, now what is the gospel? How can we explain this message, this truth that the Apostle Paul embraced and experienced? I believe it's a message that's divine in origin. The word gospel in the Greek is euagelion. It means good news. And if you think about good news, you've got to ask, well, good news from whom? Who's speaking? Who's sending forth a message? And what's the good news about? And why do individual men and women need a message of good news in the first place? The answer, of course, is simple. It's God's good news. It's God's message. Like Ehud the prophet, we can say from the pulpit, I have a message from God for you. The gospel wasn't invented by men. It's not the product of a human mind. It's not the concoction of some scholars in some university. It wasn't even a message 
um, produced in Paul's mind. It wasn't Paul's philosophy, Paul's idea. It's not his theory or opinion. No, he was gripped with the fact that this message, the gospel, is divine in its origin. It comes from God. I have a message from God for you. It's a God-sent message. It's a particular, powerful, personal message. Do you know that in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel is called the gospel of God. Why? Because that's its origin. Not a message from an angel. Or a message from the Queen. It'd be lovely to get a message from Her Majesty the Queen. Or even the Prime Minister. But beyond that, a message from the living and the true God that's particular and personal to your situation. And no matter how dark the day is spiritually, or no matter how difficult things are in the ongoing struggle and pressures of life and no matter the dearth that we experience the message from God still stands and you know what it's still the same message see this message is not only divine in its origin it's supernatural in power we can say something about the gospel and we can say this the gospel works this good news is a powerful message. Over there in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the apostle Paul, same man, said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word power there is dunamos. And, and it, 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 from which we get the English word dynamite. And you think of an explosion going off of dynamite. And of course, after the explosion, a great change has taken place. And that's the thought there, the power of God. The power of God to come into a person's life and change and transform that individual. I believe, of course, that fallen creatures in our sinful state need to experience the power of the gospel. To change a life. The drunkard can be changed. The harlot can be changed. The drug addict can be changed. The wife beater can be changed. How? By the power of the gospel. Doesn't the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And all things are of God. You see, in Christ... You become a new creature. The moment you repent of your sin and receive Christ as Lord and Saviour, a new love fills your heart, a love for Christ, a new light, the light of God in your soul, a, a, a new life. Uh, Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And we believe, of course, that the gospel is really the greatest power in the whole of the universe. Tell me anything else that can change and transform a life and... Um, Make a persecutor into a preacher. Make, make a blasphemer into a believer. Make a person who's, who's hatred and, and, and animosity toward God and the things of God into a, a lover of the things of God. It's the gospel. Also, quickly, the message is unique in its content. 
You see, the sum and substance, the theme of the message of the gospel is Christ. Christ, of course, is God's only remedy for human sinfulness. God's remedies only bound up in the person and work of his lovely son, the Lord Jesus. Think of John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's coming up to Christmas time and we'll be looking forward to that season of the year. And I'm just thinking of the words in Luke chapter 2 and the verse 10 and it was a message that the angels gave to the shepherds at that time fear not for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour which is Christ the Lord you see the message was about Christ and, and, and it's for all people Jew and Gentile rich and poor educated and uneducated for, for people of every city right across the face of the earth over there in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wanted to make it abundantly clear something about the gospel. He said, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. In Romans chapter 9, or 1 verse 9, we're, we're told the gospel of the Son of God. You see, the theme of the gospel, the sum and substance of the gospel, centers in Christ. It's a message from God. It's a message about God's remedy for human sinfulness, but it's a message that centers on the personal work of Christ. Christ born for sinners. Christ living for sinners. Christ dying for sinners. Christ rising again. Christ at God's right hand. Now, let me ask you this morning. Have you embraced and experienced the power of the gospel in your life? Do, do, do you love the gospel? The Apostle Paul could write in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Right about my gospel. How could he say that? Because it possessed him. It, it gripped him. It filled him. There was nothing more important to Paul than the gospel. The gospel was precious to him. It was a wonderful message. How do you become a Christian? The call of the gospel is repent and believe. In the Galatian church, when Paul was writing to that church, they believed, of course, you needed to trust Christ to save you. But then there was other false teachers came and told them, well, you also need to become Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to add to the gospel. And Paul says, but if you add to the gospel, you're, you're perverting the gospel. The gospel can't be tampered with. You cannot add to it. You can't take away from it. I've given you the little equation in the past. Christ plus nothing equals everything. If you have Christ, you've got everything you need that pertains to salvation. But Christ plus something added, something else, then you get nothing because you're destroying and corrupting God's way of salvation. You see, there's those that tell you today you need Christ, yes, but you also need the church. It's not the church that saves. Neither Protestant or Roman Catholic. 
there's others that would tell you you need to be baptized and you need to be confirmed and you need the, the Virgin Mary's help and you need to attend the Mass and you need to, to pay money and you need to do good works. And, and, and my argument is that's not the ground of our salvation. The Bible teaches that we're accepted in the Beloved. Once you add something to Christ, add to perfection, add to sinlessness, you're, you're changing the message. You, you can't add to Christ because Christ is the perfect, sinless, spotless son of the living God. And in some of our pulpits, when you go into church, you'll see the words above the pulpit. We live, we preach Christ in him crucified. And the Free Presbyterian Church from its inception, 1951, stands for and preaches Christ and him crucified. In other words, we're Christ-centered. We, we exalt Christ. We, we glorify him. He's a unique person. He's the God-man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. Not just a great man and a good man. He's the God-man. Think about his sinless life. He did no sin. He knew no sin in him. Was no sin. He was not able to sin. He was able not to sin. We believe in the impeccability of Christ. His sacrificial death. His, his blood atonement on Mount Calvary. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. Suffered and died alone. His bodily resurrection raised again for our justification or because of our justification. In light of it, the resurrection was proof that God accepted his blood sacrifice and a sacrificial death think about his glorious ascension where is he now he's at god's right hand before the throne of god i have a strong and perfect plea our great high priest is there but this man after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down in the right hand of god and if one sacrifice has been offered and accepted and the empty tomb is proof and he's now at god's right hand then we don't need another sacrifice Think about his return in power and glory. He's coming to reward his people. He's coming to receive us home to heaven. He's coming to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. You see, the theme is to get to Christ, to get to the foot of the cross, to, to see everything in life and in death. Through the eyes of Christ. Because life must relate and revolve and centre on Christ's person and work. He's an exclusive Christ. Acts 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. Whereby we must be saved. He's an exalted Christ. Let's have a high view of him. That's why I was so annoyed about Greg's advert in the paper. We, we do intend to write to them. We're going to write to the Equality Commission as well. Because that was sacrilegious. At the nativity scene, putting a, 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 a sausage roll with a bite out of it in place of the Christ child was a mockery of the doctrine of the incarnation. A, a mockery of his virgin birth. It was being sacrilegious. And it was poking fun at the Christ child and poking fun at Christianity. Because Christ exalted. We must have a high view of him. And he's an effective Christ. Jesus saves He's an eternal Christ. He doesn't change. He said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Do you know him? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you been found by him? Have you laid hold on him? Have you got eternal life? Have you trusted him? Is he, is he your Lord and Savior today? There's the definition of the gospel. It's divine in origin. It's supernatural in power. 
and it's got a centralized theme. And the theme is, is Christ and Christ alone. I want you to think secondly and very quickly, defending the gospel. You see, this was Paul's task. If you look at the text in Philippians 1, Paul says, I am set for the defense of the gospel. I want to ask a question, valid question. Is it the responsibility and the duty of the gospel preacher to defend the gospel? He has a duty to spread the message, that's true. But has he a duty to stand up for that message when that message is attacked? And the answer is yes. Whenever Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel, he was thinking about those who are opposed to the gospel, who are setting forth arguments against the truth of the gospel, who are distorting the gospel, who are corrupting the gospel. And Paul says to those who are preaching on the outside, remember he's in prison, don't be terrified. Don't feel threatened by them because I am set for the defense of the gospel. See, down the years, many sadly have criticized our own Free Presbyterian Church for its stand against the teaching of Roman Catholicism, against modernism, against ecumenism. And um, we have been lambasted for having protests and rallies and writing newspaper articles and responding to things. But why do we do it? Because we want to be contentious and because we just want to be seen as fighting fundamentalists? The answer is no. We do it because we have a love for Christ and the gospel. And I can, I can say that's our motivation. That, that word defense there that you read and set for the defense of the gospel, that, that word defense means, in the Greek, apologize. And of course today the language is different. We think of apologize, we think of saying sorry. But, but in Paul's day, an apology wasn't an a sorry. In Paul's day, an apology was a legal term. It had to do with the courtroom. Someone was standing up and defending what he believed to be true. It was a formal defense. It was an expose of that which the individual believed to be false. Two times the apostle has used the word defense. He's already used it in verse 7. He says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace and that word defense in verse 7 means to fight off an attack in verse 17 it's attacking those who attack the gospel it's going on the defense it's setting forth as i've said an apology a, 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 a legal defense of the gospel the accuser stands up and he lays forth his charges. And then the defense team, you've heard of the defense team in the court, the defense of the defendant. And he stands up and his defense is, is really called an apology. As I said, a, a legal word. For the past 66 years, the Free Presbyterian Church has been standing up for the gospel. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, was standing up for the gospel. In John Wesley's day, when they were throwing eggs at him and dead cats at him and rotten tomatoes, he went on preaching the gospel. He was standing for the gospel. 
And the same with George Whitfield. You know, on one occasion he was preaching somewhere in England and there was a large band came with big drums and they battered the drums and tried to drown out the preacher. Why? Because the devil hates the gospel. And at the heart of it is how do you become a Christian? What do, does the church really believe? How do we know what is truth and what is error? And of course, that's where the spirit of discernment comes in. Paul uses the word set here. I am set, and that word means an appointment. I'm appointed, appointed by God. And that appointment can't be changed. It can't be shifted. I'm unmovable. I'm not shiftable. You see, Paul didn't compromise. He didn't allow himself to be confused. Everybody knew where Paul stood. Paul was raised up for such a time as this. This is not only Paul's task, but this is Paul's testimony. I have no doubt he believed the message. I have no doubt he broadcast the message from prison. I have no doubt he, he witnessed to the soldier that he was chained to, a different one maybe every day or, or every few hours. Here he is in bonds for the message. In prison because of the gospel. And everybody knew where he stood. Paul was defending the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, we're really not sure where many stand today individually and congregationally. Many purport to be evangelicals. It was Dr. Paisley who used to say the emphasis was on the jelly. And of course, jelly's not very strong. You, you couldn't stand on it. And where do men stand when it comes to the incarnation? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Where, where does men stand when it comes to the virgin birth of Christ? Where does men stand when it comes to the atonement? You see, there can be many question marks over men who purport to be evangelical, but, but, but won't declare clearly where they stand. But there was no question marks over the Apostle Paul. His testimony was clear. This is my task, he says. I am set for the defense of the gospel. Everybody knew where he stood. And everybody knew what he stand for. He preached the whole counsel of God. Paul was not a compromiser. He didn't tailor the message to suit an individual congregation. He was not a man pleaser, as he said in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4. He preached in Antioch, Galatia, Colossa. Philippi, he preached in Rome, and everybody knew where he stood. And everybody really ought to know where the Free Presbyterian Church stands. And everybody ought to know what the testimony of the Free Presbyterian Church is when it comes to Christ and Him crucified. And let's seek to maintain that testimony until Christ comes. Paul's task, Paul's testimony. Paul's treasure. You think of the crown jewels in the Tower of London and they're guarded 24-7 and the soldiers that guard them, they guard them with their life. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing in relation to the gospel. The gospel's my greatest treasure. It's a particular, powerful, personal message from God and that's what I preach and I guard it with my life. As we close this morning, think about the declaring of the gospel. If you look again at our text, it says, but the other of love. Think of these two types of preachers, one of contention 
and one of compassion, one of love and loyalty. A true gospel ministry will always consist of the preaching of Christ. In verse 12, as we've said, he mentioned the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 14, he mentioned in many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he says in verse 18, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. That's the message. Christ is preached. And therein do I rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. And of course, that's what gospel preaching is all about. It's not about the opinions of men, the ideas of men, the philosophies of men, the theories of men. It's not about man's culture. The, the preaching of the word of God, it's all about Christ. The sum and substance of true preaching is Christ. And the preaching of the Christ will secure the advancement of God's work. And the events of life will work out in the mind of a sovereign God for the furtherance and for the advancement of the gospel. You see, Paul was in prison. Everybody thought this was the end, like they did in 1966 with the imprisonment of our three ministers. But it wasn't, because God had a plan. God had a purpose. And the gospel was furthered by these events that took place, because God used them and God worked. And the gospel made progress. And the gospel advanced. And we should rejoice. Rejoice in that advancement. Because there's not only the definition here and the defense of the gospel but there's the declaring of the gospel do you and i who are saved we have a responsibility a great privilege and that is to go out and share the gospel with as many as will listen and pray that the gospel will be worked into hearts by the power of the spirit and individuals will come under its power have their lives changed and they too then will testify of the power of God in the life. Let us rejoice that Christ is preached in our country at this time for God's glory.